All right, so we're in the book of Romans. And we're in chapter 10. Please open the outline if you have it. So as a reminder of where we've come from, we have the beginning of the book, and what we have is the apostleship of Paul is brought forward, the idea that there's an authority to Scripture, that there is no higher authority, that we look to the Word of God as the authority in the church. And it moves from there to talking about the mission that he has, the Great Commission, to spread the knowledge of God to fill the earth. Now, there's this grand thesis in the first chapter, verses 16 and 17. And that thesis reads as follows. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, there is one object of faith, one thing to think about that is the saving thing, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel. There is no difference between the gospel and between Jesus Christ. When we have the gospel, we are believing Christ. We are believing His mind revealed to us. And so it is the power of God to save everyone who believes it. And there is no distinction whether it's the Jew or the Greek, the Gentile or the Jew. And that's an emphasis in Romans 10. And so there is this idea of the righteousness of God that has been a theme throughout the book. And the idea that this is revealed from the word given, the objective faith, to us as believers, to our internal faith, our subjective faith. And then there's this quote from Habakkuk 2, that the just shall live by faith. And that's proving the doctrine. So, then, in chapters 1 to 3, we saw the righteousness of God in Himself, right? the law and His attributes of righteousness. Then we saw that the believer is, not just the believer, sorry, anybody, any human being is condemned under the law. And so in chapters 3 to 5, we see salvation from that law and from the wrath of God by Christ and the idea of the righteousness of God imputed to the believer, credited to the believer, counted to the believer, this, this legal transaction where righteousness is given to the believer. Then we looked on, on the fact that in chapters 6 to 8, we have the doctrine of sanctification, that we are being righteous in Christ, now more and more transformed after the image of Christ. And we get to 9, and chapter 9 begins this question of the righteousness of God if God plans everything, if God predestines everything, then how do we deal with Him as a righteous God? Does that make Him the author of evil? And so we talked about the idea that He causes all things and yet is not blamable, He's not responsible for evil because He is above the law and is the definer of good and evil. So we get to the end of that chapter and we come into the beginning of Romans 10 and so we'll read the last few verses of Romans 9 starting at verse 30. So Romans 30 sorry Romans 9 verse 30 What shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness even the righteousness of faith but Israel pursuing the law of righteousness does not attain to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, 
but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Or, who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, This next part we won't be talking about today, but I want to read it to give you context. How then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. Their sound has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, did Israel not know? For Moses, first Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. All right, so let's walk through this now. So, looking at the end of chapter 9, there's a couple of things to be reminded of. The end of chapter 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith? Now, remember, the Gentiles did not seek righteousness. They 
they, they didn't get it by doing the work of the law. They weren't even seeking out the commandments of God. They were filled with superstition and false beliefs. But the gospel went out to the nations, and faith was given as a gift, and so righteousness was imputed to the Gentiles like anyone who would believe. And so they, without seeking, obtained righteousness. But, verse 31, but Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone. So, in pursuing the use of the law and the use of it to obtain their own righteousness, Israel, the visible church, a national body, the people who were descended from Jacob, these people did not have righteousness before God. Why? Because they had the law and they used it illegally. The illegal use of the law. The illegal use of the law is trying to use the law of God for the purpose of justifying yourself before God. The purpose of the law is not to make it so you can stand before God and say, yes, I am a law keeper. I keep the law. Count me righteous by my law keeping. The law has a goal. The goal of the law is to point to Christ. The goal of the law is to point to the need that we have for Christ as a Savior. And in pointing to Christ, what it does is it shows the righteousness of God more fully, which has been the theme in Romans, that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And so the law shows the righteousness of God, and it shows that our own righteousness is insufficient. And so rather than seeking the law of righteousness and trying to have that righteousness by ourselves, by law-keeping, we must look to Christ and His righteousness knowing that we have that righteousness, that we're counted as righteous by faith alone. Now, this is a message that causes stumbling. There's In verse 33, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. We talked about last time how that rock of offense, the word offense is scandalou. So, scandal. It's a rock of scandal. And whoever believes on Him will not be put to shame. We sang about shame and asking God to cause us to not have shame in Psalm 25. And so, how do we avoid shame? We avoid shame having the righteousness of Christ being vindicated before the whole world. And so, if we look upon the Gospel of justification by faith alone, if we look upon Christ and what He has done, if we look upon the crucified Savior and our offended by Him and do not see Him as having dealt with all of our debt before God, then we will stumble over the stumbling stone. If we try to say, well, justification, it's by faith, but it's also by my own works, and try to mix the two, then we've stumbled over the stumbling stone. If we do anything to take anything other than the grace of God, faith as a gift, and the work of Christ so that His merit is given to us, then we've stumbled at the stumbling stone. And so the gospel must be preserved pure and entire or else grace is no longer grace and work is no longer work. We confuse the categories and eliminate the distinction. 
So we get into chapter 10, verse 1, and it says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So in verse 1 here, Paul continues to express goodwill toward the people who are descended from Jacob, the visible church, Israel, the group as a body politic. He is one of them. He was born a Jew, the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee of Pharisees. As to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. Paul was a Jew's Jew. And he desires the salvation of that people. He prays for their salvation. And this desire will be fulfilled. We see in Romans 11. I keep hinting forward to that, but it's important. Romans 11 teaches that there will be an ingrafting in again of the Jews, that the people that are descended from Jacob, that there will be a large bringing in of them in such a way as to be like the bringing in of the Gentiles. And that when that happens, there will be a way in which it's a broad blessing to the world. Now, in verse 2, Paul expresses appreciation for the zeal of the people of Israel, but complains that the zeal is lacking in theological knowledge. Now, zeal, it's important to to realize that zeal is very closely related to the word jealousy. When you are zealous for something, you are jealous for something. If you have a zeal for something, you have a strong desire for that thing. You want it badly. And if you are jealous for something, it's because the idea that you want to possess it. So that's the the sort of distinction. The zeal is a strong desire, and jealousy, which is very closely connected, has to do with sort of the desire for possession. But they can be used essentially interchangeably. Now, you can be jealous for something rightly. If a man is not jealous for his wife, then he is not rightly concerned about that relationship. If he is not concerned to maintain the affections of his wife. That idea that God manifests his desire for the affections of his church, we see that over and over again, that he is zealous for his people, for his glory. He is jealous for their right worship. And so we see that in the second commandment. The desire for a thing, zeal. And jealousy, the desire to possess that thing. Now, zeal is something that we are commanded to to have. We are to have a zeal for the glory of God. We are to have a zeal to see the glory of God manifested in the earth. To see the name of Christ honored in the nations. We are to be jealous for the knowledge of God. That we want to possess the knowledge of God. But a zeal without knowledge... A zeal without knowledge is a dangerous thing. A zeal without knowledge leads to the fervent action of an individual in error. It leads to people murdering, persecuting Christians and thinking they serve God, like the Apostle Paul did before he was converted. Zeal without knowledge is something that the Apostle Paul was very familiar with. And so he points to the danger of this zeal. When you have a strong zeal and you're wrong, 
it can turn into a sort of invincible ignorance. I think about people who have a very strong opinion, a very strong belief against the truth and the efforts to try to persuade them. It can be very difficult to get them to even talk about it. And so that kind of invincible error. So the Apostle Paul has been going around and preaching from city to city, town to town, going synagogue to synagogue, engaging with the Jews, and many of them have believed. But many of the times they result in him being stoned or beaten or lashed, a riot. He leaves town quickly. Those are often the effects because of their ignorant zeal. And so the rejection of Christ that occurred was prophesied and Paul has been experiencing it and he's bringing him much pain. Both physically and also in terms of him not being able to see what he wants, which is the people of Israel converted. So, we get to verses 3 and 4 and there's this explanation further about this zeal being not according to knowledge. How is it not according to knowledge? For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. There's four uses of the word righteousness in those two verses. Right? You, you can listen to it and it almost, it almost jams up in your mind. Your righteousness, 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 righteousness. Right? It starts to sound like it's not a word. Right? Any word you repeat it often enough and all of a sudden you kind of go, is this a word? Is this my hand? What am I doing here? Right? You can go into this kind of weird sense of what's going on. And what we have in this text is an intentional drumbeat repetition. These Jews, though they had the law, they're ignorant about the righteousness of God in the law. How could that be? You hear, the, you hear the law preached over and over again. How many churches in America hear the preaching of the Word of God week in and week out, and their understanding of the law of God is kitty pool deep? That might even be that might even be generous. More like the, the depth of the water on a counter before you wipe it off. Right? The teaching of the law is not done. But Jesus says that there's a blessing for those who teach the law and teach it without subtracting from it. Not as a way of being saved, but because of how important it is that you see the law as the standard that it is. And that you see the righteousness of God in the law and how you cannot be justified because you are sinful. And so the danger is that they were ignorant of God's righteousness because they had written glosses over, commentaries over. They had been preaching about the law of God that made it keepable. That made it something that didn't have to be all that rigorous. And so you have Jesus getting questions like, okay, I'm supposed to love my neighbor, but who's my neighbor? Right? And what was the subtext there? I have tried to generally act that way towards Jews, but not towards everybody. And so then Jesus responds with the Good Samaritan story. Right? And he goes, here are these Samaritans, these people that you as Jews hate. And he did this thing for this injured person. There's a Levite and a priest, and these guys didn't help the guy who was injured on the side of the road. Which one was a neighbor? 
And so this idea of the love of the neighbor, Jesus is showing you are a breaker of this law. Right? There's the rich young ruler who comes to him, and he says, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus tells him to keep all the commandments, and he says, well, I've been keeping them since I've been young. And he says, great, good job. Just one thing then, let's take all your money and let's give it to the poor. And the guy leaves really sad because he's really rich. And Jesus isn't saying it's sin to own money. What is he saying? He's saying, let me show you your idol. Let me show you what you value more than God. You value your money more than God. And you need to see that so that you can see that you need to repent in dust and ashes. That you are not saved by your law keeping. So we see Jesus doing that over and over again. And so he is trying to preach to the people that their righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. The problem with the Pharisees was not that they took the law of God too seriously, it's that they viewed it as too easy to keep. And they made the law keepable. They were ignorant of God's righteousness. And they were ignorant of God's righteousness because they wanted to justify themselves. They wanted to say, I am righteous. And they sought to establish their own righteousness. Not having submitted to the righteousness of God. You know what submitting to the righteousness of God looks like? It looks like condemning self, saying, I am guilty. I am cursed under the law. I deserve the punishment of hell. And so you say, under the curse, being guilty, God is just. And I am unjust. That justifying of God and condemning of self is what causes the fear of the Lord which is the beginning of wisdom. Because we see that we will suffer His punishment. And so what we need is mercy. So verse 4, if you, unlike the Jews who tried to make the righteousness of God into something that they could keep, that they could get their own righteousness, instead, if you submit to God's righteousness and see that you are guilty, then you can see that Christ is the goal of the law, so that righteousness is given to everyone who believes. And so, this idea of the righteousness of God in the law, the fact that we cannot keep the law ourselves, we can't have our own righteousness, and this submission to the righteous judgment of God, that's how the law is a mirror and shows us our own guilt and shows us the need of a Savior. And so that work of the law, the mirror use, the first use of the law that was being talked about. And so there's a righteousness in Christ. So when we talk about the righteousness that's in that verse 4, right? for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He is the end of the law. He is the goal of the law. Now there's, there's two other ways that, that has been interpreted historically. One is to say that Christ is the fulfiller of the law, so the end of it in the sense that it's been completed. And that's certainly true, but I don't think that's what the text is saying right here. I think that's implied by the text. It's an application, but not the sense of the text. Okay? And then there's also this idea that Christ ends the old administration of the covenant of grace, so we don't have to keep the old ceremonies anymore. So the law being referred to in that way. And that's certainly true, and it's an application of the text, but I don't think it's the sense of the text. Because if we look at the context, he's explaining why did the Jews trip up. They tripped up 
because they didn't use the law properly. And the law was supposed to show them that they couldn't be righteous. And what they needed was the law to point them to the goal of Christ and the glory of God that Christ would obtain righteousness for them through faith, apart from works. So let me get into verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. Now contrast that with the thesis back at the beginning. Right? We have the man who does the law shall live by the law. Right? The man who does the commandments shall live by the commandments. On the other hand, we have the thesis which is the just shall live by faith. So there's living by faith and there's living by the commandments. Living by the commandments is the covenant of works. Do this and live. Broken in the garden. Living by faith is faith as the instrument that connects you to the righteousness of Christ. It's having eternal life. John 17.3 says that this is eternal life to know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. And so you have this eternal life by having faith. The knowledge of God is life. And so this text is laying out and contrasting for us this idea of justification by works and justification by faith. Being righteous in the sight of God by one or the other. And so verse 6 moves into talking about, okay, if you have the righteousness by faith, what will happen? Well, but the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. And it denies things. It's rebuking thoughts. Don't say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. Don't say in your heart who will descend into the abyss. Now there's the parentheticals. But there's this this next line in verse 8 and it says, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. Okay, so we're going to ignore the parentheticals for just a second. What is this talking about? What is this? Right? And it's a quote. It's a quote from the book of Deuteronomy. And so the parentheticals are his explaining of the book of Deuteronomy. But the quote is from Deuteronomy chapter 30. And it's, look at the end of verse 9 through 14. Look, so you look down, point number 10. We've got sub-point A, and I've got the quote there of Deuteronomy. It says, For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good, as he rejoiced over your fathers. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep His commandments and His statutes which are written in this book of the law, and if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, for this commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious for you. It's not not hidden so that you can't understand it. Nor is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the Word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may do it. Now, this is a text that's closely associated with the law. All sorts of commandments. right? He's saying, do this thing. Like, I've given you this Word. Do this thing. So what is Paul doing with it? Paul is saying, the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. 
What he's saying here is, don't ask, how can we accomplish this impossible thing of getting revelation from God if he doesn't want to give it? Because that's to suggest that Christ is not already reigning, having given us his word as king of the church. Don't ask, who will descend into the abyss? Now, you think about the sea. The sea is often pointed to as this idea of dying or going under. Baptism talks about the idea of going under into the tomb. And so, this idea of going down, the descending into the abyss, points to death. And the idea of, of who's going to accomplish this impossible thing. That is, to bring up Christ from the dead. Right? It's, to, it's to nullify the fact that Christ already died. To pay for our sins. What does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Now the word of faith is the doctrine revealed by God. And that's what Paul is preaching. And so the idea is, as opposed to doing these things to obtain a righteousness before God, the idea is we can't look to these impossible things and say, okay, I'm going to do them. Instead, it's believing the word. And this is the word of faith. It's the objective faith. Right? It's from faith to faith. And that's what's being referred back to. This is the objective word that is given to us that we are to believe. So verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Now, what there is a discussion of here is two things. Justification, being righteous before God, and salvation in the broad sense. With the heart, you believe, and you are counted as righteous. With the mouth, you confess, and that confession, that's a commandment. It's a duty that we have. Are we justified? You know, somebody believe, but not confess, and then go to hell? Is it justification by faith and confession? What he's saying here is that there's a benefit that comes from confession. And the word confession in English is an interesting word, because it's, it's literally con and then faith. Right, confession here has to do with the word faith. It's with, con, and this confession has to do with a profession, a statement of faith. And so, confession of truth is not a means of justification before God. It's a means of growing in integrity. It's a means of growing in sanctification in seeing redemption applied around you. Right? As you confess the truth, it strengthens you in your own resolve. And as you confess the truth, it also causes other people to believe. And as you confess the truth, it transforms what's around you. Because speaking the truth has the effect of causing change. And when you look at the way things have been done in the world around us recently, you know, the homosexual agenda has largely been advanced by saying, be bold about this, be loud about this, be proud about this. And so the idea of kind of coming out of the closet and professing that you have some sort of sexual desire that's not heteronormative or you know, whatever, that idea has been to try to make it so that it's normalized 
and to try to make it so that people feel bad trying to say it's wrong, and to try to make it so that there's this effort to change the culture around you and to, to alter things. And so recently somebody was kind of joking with me about the idea that you know, having a Christian company is sort of like having to come out of the closet. You're like announcing this thing. And I was thinking, you know, it, it's awful that this is the way that we're having to compare this now, but it's, it's true because the danger is you put a target on yourself. Right? You have this idea that if you're a Christian business, there's some sort of way that there's going to be an attack on it, that you're going to be, have some sort of lawsuit about discrimination for one of various things. So, okay, we're just called to do that. You're called to confess the Lord Jesus Christ. You're called to do it if it costs you your life. You're called to do it if it costs you minor inconvenience. You're called to do it if it causes you minor loss of social credit. Like, not a big deal compared to the martyrs that have gone before. And so, the idea of being bold and of glorying in, being proud of, the only thing that's reasonable for us to be proud of, which is that we know and understand the Lord. He who glories, let him glory in this, that he knows and understands me. what God says. So this confession is a statement of unification, a statement that you're identified with Christ. And it has transformative effects. Salvation, as a term, can be used broadly or narrowly. In the narrow way, we're used to talking about it in terms of the idea of, how can I get saved? How can I avoid going to hell? Right? But what's being talked about here is salvation in the broad sense, the removal of curse. And so, the Westminster Shorter Catechism does an excellent job of breaking up these categories. Question 29 to 33 talk about being given the gift of faith and effectual calling. And 33 is the doctrine of justification. Okay? But then, 34 through 38 talk about other benefits, other effects, like adoption and sanctification. It talks about glorification. And so we think about these doctrines and how they work together. And so, the broad sense is what's accomplished by confessing the faith. Verse 11, For the Scriptures say, whoever believes on Him will not be put to shame. Now, we won't be put to shame in the final judgment if we believe. And we will overcome the devil and the world and the flesh if we confess the faith and apply it. And so, that's what Psalm 25, to a large extent, is talking about, this idea of not being triumphed over by our enemies. That as we, we pray, and, and notice that the term confession is a broad term. When you pray, are you confessing the faith? When you sing a psalm, are you confessing the faith? And so, look how Paul enters into that idea. Verse 12 For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. Oh, I forgot. Did you forget that we were talking about Jews and why have they been abandoned or what's going on here? And so he comes back to it, right? He's he's talking about this idea that justification and salvation were not accomplished, were not obtained by the Jews because of the fact that they had used the law illegally but it applies to both the Jew and the Greek, to the Gentile and the Jew, in the same way. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon Him. So this is going back to the idea of confessing Him leading to salvation. So verse 13, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so, this idea of not being shamed 
and being saved, we won't be ashamed in the day of judgment, and we will be saved from the wrath of God. But we also will find that our shame is eliminated here on the earth. Because you remember back early on, he said, don't be ashamed of the gospel. He's not ashamed of the gospel. He glories in the gospel. So confessing it before men is not some shameful thing that we're trying to eliminate shame for. It's building up our courage and our boldness. It's building ourselves up in the commitment that we have. It's making it so the world around us and our reputation is tied together with what we inwardly believe. And it eliminates shame. And it helps others to not have that shame. The bolder we are about Christ together, the less we will be tempted towards shame. Together. And we will be saved not only from the wrath of God, but from temporal curses. Which is what that Deuteronomy quote is in the middle of, by the way. Deuteronomy 30 is in the middle of talking about temporal curses that come when you do not obey God. Now you can suffer curses in time and not lose your salvation. Not lose your justification. But I would rather live a life where I'm justified and where rather than shame and curse, I'm surrounded by a glorying in the word of God and blessing. I think you want that too. And so we ought to work together We should believe the word in every detail and we should confess the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So the doctrine that I want you to walk away with as we we look at this text, what have we drawn out? God's law shows our guilt. When we make up laws, it's a counterfeit. The doctrines and commandments of men are of no effect. They have no authority. And so... They are, we cannot establish our own righteousness by making the law keepable. The law of God shows our guilt. Do not dumb the law of God down. Use it to help you to be aware of your own failings. It shows you your own errors. It shows you where you are going the wrong way. Don't dumb it down. Look at the law of God. Meditate on it day and night. And accept that you are in error where you are in error. And seek to apply the law to reform. Not because it saves you in the narrow sense but because it saves you in the broad sense. It doesn't save you in getting you right before God, but it does save you from shame, and it does save you from curse in this life. We should condemn ourselves, call ourselves guilty, and we should justify God, call Him righteous. We should look to Christ as the goal of the law to provide righteousness so that we have that righteousness by faith. Secondly, Christ is the end of the law. Let's remember the three ways in which that's true. Christ is the goal of the law. Christ fulfills the law. He does everything it requires for us in our place. And Christ ends the old ceremonies. So we have a new administration. We have a new covenant. It's the same covenant. We have the same covenant with Abraham. Remember Romans 4.11, that he received circumcision as the sign of the righteousness that he had by faith. So it's the same covenant. It's the sign for the same covenant. But we have different signs now. We have baptism instead of circumcision. And so we realize that the old ceremonies are ended, and we have the new covenant ceremonies. Third point, 
we need to remember the narrow use of the term salvation and the broad use of the term salvation. The narrow use about getting right before God. The broad use has to do with all the benefits of salvation. And so when you read your Bible, ask yourself which sense is being used when you see the word salvation. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members or those with floor rights? Mr. Nye? Thank you for your teaching, Elderies. Um, I wanted to, real quick, ask about in verses 3 and 4, the four senses of, of uh, the word righteousness. That third sense um, uh, being that uh, the Jews have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Um, I wanted to ask, I believe you're talking about recognizing the, the righteousness of God's judgment. Mm-hmm. That ju- God justly condemns them for being law- lawbreakers. Yes. They're actually guilty uh, because they've broken God's law. God is just to, to, uh, to punish them as a result. Um, I've always seen that use um, verse that, that that part of verse three as the righteousness of God as being that the righteousness of of God in Christ. Like God's provision of righteousness, his provision of the imputation of righteousness for believing uh, as a, uh, that's received through through faith. So um how is that not the case? How is it, how is it that, that one that you're talking about? Not yeah, so it, it might be what you're saying. So that's Hodges' interpretation. What you, you just expressed in Hodges' commentary in Romans, he, he takes that position. Okay. Um, so uh, so that, the idea that they didn't submit to the gospel, in other words. Yeah. And, and you see a few verses down, a quote uh, from Isaiah and just before it, Paul says, they didn't obey the, the gospel. So those being interpreted in the same way. So there's two contextual arguments. One is trying to look at it in terms of the text before and the idea of them stumbling over the stumbling stone and them uh, seeking to establish their own righteousness and not accepting the judgment of God. And the other one would just be, say, the stumbling stone is the gospel. They didn't obey the gospel down here. And here this, this use of righteousness is saying they didn't believe the gospel. And so I think that there's not a problem with that. And I think that you end up with the text meaning the same thing, whichever one you put in. So is it saying they didn't understand that they're guilty? Or is it they didn't understand that they receive righteousness through mercy? And so if they're self-righteous, both would be true. And so the question is, is this emphasizing self-righteousness here? Or is it emphasizing the idea of obedience to the gospel being faith? And... um, I had to make a choice, and I decided to not explain some of the possibilities, but I don't think there's a problem with that view. So, that answer your question? Yes, definitely. Okay. So, any, any further concerns on that? No, Okay. So, I, I, I would not object to either interpretation. I think that the doctrine is the same, and it's just which, which is the sense of that particular sentence, right? So, Okay. Thank you. Any other comments or questions or objections? Okay, let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for this word. We ask that you would cause us to understand and believe your holy scriptures. We ask that you would keep those who are traveling safe, those who are out from sickness, that you would heal them, that you would cause Mr. Price's back to recover quickly. And we ask that you would cause this word to deepen our appreciation of the gospel that you would cause us to have a deeper desire to understand the law and to apply it. That you would help us to be bold in confessing the truth. And that we would see the truth transform not only ourselves, but also the world around us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.